0: Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. There was an Englishman named William Tyndale. You might have heard that word before. There are certain parachurch groups that are named after Tyndale that do Bible translation in particular. Well, he was the first guy that took the Greek New Testament. So remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written written in Hebrew. He was the first guy that took the Greek New Testament and translated it into English, which was huge because all of a sudden God's people— had this, this much more accurate translation of God's word. One of the first times where, in England at least, God's people had access to God's word, and that was one way that God kind of sparked the, uh, the Reformation where the church got back to the gospel. Well, in, in his English translation of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, this is what Tyndale says. This is how he, he translates it. He says, I testify therefore before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead. You've probably heard that phrase before, the quick and the dead. It was a movie that was called the quick and the dead. We hear that phrase tossed around, but but we don't use it much this way any longer. People don't usually talk about the quick the way that he's talking about it there with, with the quick and the dead, but it's just another way to talk about the living. That's what the quick means in that phrase. It just means the living. That's why the bottom part of your nail is called the quick. That's the part that it really hurts if it if it gets cut, right? It's, it's the, the most living part there. Well, in our passage this morning, we see two opposing forces that sort of run throughout the the entire chapter. These two individuals who claim to be in charge of their kingdoms and claim to be in charge of the people that are underneath their kingdom. So we've got King Herod, and then we've got God. These two forces here in, in Acts chapter 12, but by the end, only one of them is left standing, And that's sort of the distinction that Acts 12 is going to make clear. There's there's this distinction between the quick and the dead. Now, it's a long passage, so we're we're not going to read the whole thing up front, but we'll deal with all the verses as we work through the passage. And what we're going to see are three main things, so three main truths that we're going to see from Acts chapter 12. So first, human authorities aren't in charge. God is. It's the first thing we're going to see. Second, your expectations show how powerful you think God is. And then finally, third, God's word can never be stopped. So let's have Luke set up our passage this morning. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So it's something we see in Acts as the gospel continues to go out. The world continues to persecute the church. See that from the earliest chapters of Acts. It's going to go on throughout the whole thing. It's going to go out into church history. happens even today. This shouldn't be surprising to us. Jesus promised that his followers would face persecution. So no surprise. Here they are in Acts 12. There's persecution. And it comes by way of Herod, who was the Rome-appointed king of the Jews. So Israel is underneath the Roman Empire, as basically everybody else was in the entire known world at this time. So Rome had appointed Herod as the king over Israel. And, and Herod would have taken lots of comfort in that fact, because uh, the Roman Empire was, was the biggest thing going at this point. There was nobody that could rival it. At, at least they didn't think there was. So for Herod to know that he's got the Roman Empire at his back, they're standing behind him, he, he took a lot of comfort in that. He would have known, oh, I have I have a lot of authority. In fact he, he would have thought that his authority was uh, was unyielding, that, that he could do basically anything that that he wanted to do. He'd come to believe that that he really was in charge. And he exercises that perceived authority in Acts twelve by having the apostle James killed. So he has James killed, and and then he has Peter arrested. And then we're going to see at the end of this passage, he gives this speech to an assembled crowd where he welcomes their praise of him. So it's one theme that runs throughout Acts chapter 12. Okay, Herod thinks he's really powerful, thinks he's in charge, thinks his authority knows no limits. And so the question for us is, is that the reality? So the way Herod thought about things, does that accord with reality? Is he really in charge? Well, let's look more closely at the first scene in our passage this morning. Verse 1 again. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So remember, Jesus had commissioned this group of his, his closest male followers. He calls them the apostles, the ones who are sent out. And that's what they do. He sends them out. They're folks that, that he set apart to carry on his ministry after he had ascended to be with the Father. So, so you know, in an army, these guys would be kind of like the generals, And in a war, it's huge to capture a general. Usually doesn't happen because armies are set up to be sure that leaders at that level don't get captured. Well, that's basically what Herod had done here in verse 2. He captures one of the three central apostles. Remember John, James, and Peter? So he captures James on the inner circle there, and and he kills him. He arrests him, and and he executes him. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he sees that it's it's pleasing to the Jews. So that's his thinking here. Okay, these people, they like this thing that I just did. So Hayes, our, our youngest boy, is three. So Hayes, pretty quick, this just happens to humans, but Hayes noticed that if he did something silly, we would laugh. So what does he do? Does he say, okay, that's enough for today. I did the silly thing. They laughed. I'll say, nope, nope. He's got to keep doing silly things because that's what we do as humans. Oh, they're pleased with that. I'm gonna do more of that, right? That's what Herod does here. So he's he's kind of like the, the the really wealthy boyfriend, maybe that his girlfriend just offhandedly says, Oh, I like that thing, and he just buys it for her because he, he has those resources. So that's the thing Herod does here. So he has James killed, he notices the people like it, and so he decides to uh to arrest Peter as well. <clears throat> but what Herod realizes is he he can't kill Peter until Passover is over. So Luke makes that note here, because the Jews would have been displeased if during Passover, during this festival, if, if a prisoner was executed, you weren't supposed to do that. So Herod just puts Peter in jail until Passover is done, and then the plan is to kill him. And because Herod is really powerful, he pulls all the stops to be sure Peter is kept in jail. So he doesn't spare any expense here, right? I killed James, they were happy, I'm going to kill Peter. And because I can't do it right today... I'm gonna be sure that I hang on to him until I can kill him. So look at verse four, all the things Herod does. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So he's got all these soldiers in charge of watching Peter. A squad was four soldiers, and he has enough of those squads to, to carry on throughout all those different shifts of the night. So he's got fresh soldiers coming in regularly. Look down at verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So it's not like these soldiers are sitting outside the cell playing cards, right, shooting the breeze, not paying attention to the prisoner. No, actually, there's two soldiers, one on either side of Peter, and he's chained up, and then there's guards outside of the prison as well. So Herod is probably feeling pretty good about all of this. He spared no expense. He's got all these different guys guarding Peter. Peter's chained up. In Herod's mind, this guy is definitely going to die because that's what I do. I'm the king, so I've decided he's going to die. Of course, that's going to that's happen. So because Herod was in charge, he's put all these things in place. So, so again, the question is, is that true? Was, was Herod really in charge? Well, no, not even close. Look at what happens in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, next to Peter, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, real quick, this, by the way, is, is a great picture of the gospel, right, of what happened. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is what happened to you when you first came to Christ. Just the, the same way that those chains fall off of Peter. As, as a non-Christian, you were in chains, can think back and you can probably remember what that felt like, what that looked like. As a non-Christian, you were you were bound up in your sin. This is John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that was you as a non-Christian. You were in chains with, with no hope of escape, at least not in your own power and your own ability. But then God came to you and he freed you. So in Christ, he, he took the chains off. He, he united you with Christ through faith alone in Him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is what's being held out to you as well. So freedom from your sin. So things that you think, oh, I'm I'm caught up in this thing. Even if I would like to change, I never could. Well, in a lot of ways, that's probably true outside of Christ because you are chained up in your sin. You can be freed from that. More importantly, you can be freed from the guilt that your sin has brought before the Lord. Because that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is is not the sin that we're caught up in in this life, although that's bad. It's the guilt that we have when we'll stand before the Lord of the universe one day when somebody has to pay for those sins. Of course, you can be freed from that guilt by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You can let Jesus stand in your place and pay for your sins so that you don't have to do it when you stand before the Lord. And, And all you have to do is is place your full hope and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you want to talk more about that, grab me after the service or shoot me an email. My email address is on the bottom, on the back of of every bulletin. You can grab somebody else who's a member here, talk to them about about this good news of the gospel. So this this angel comes from God, takes the chains off Peter's hands. Verse 8, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out, And followed him. So God sends this this angel in order to free Peter. So even though Herod had said Peter belongs in jail, God said Peter belongs out of jail. And of course, God wins. God's the one who is in charge. So guess what? Peter ends up out of jail, he ends up free. Human authorities might think they're ultimately in charge, even citizens under those authorities might think those authorities are ultimately in charge, but that's not true human authorities are never ultimately in charge and and this is particularly important for Christians to understand when they're under a government that's hostile to the gospel like we see here in, in Acts chapter 12 because that's the kind of government that Christians are tempted to fear it makes sense right we're, we're tempted to fear the kind of government that might punish us for obedience to the bible we're tempted to fear the kind of government that that might punish us for faithfulness to christ because the thing about the government is they've got the ability to, to punish citizens in various ways. So, so our church, <clears throat> we pray it won't happen, but one day our church could, could face tax penalties if we continue to practice what the Bible says about gender and about sexuality. That's, that's something that could actually happen. We could be punished for that. So some of you could lose your job at some point because of obedience to Scripture. And, and whereas the government 30 years ago might have stepped in and helped you kind of fight that, that might not be the case anymore. You could be punished in those ways. And see the Christians in Acts were were dealing with the most extreme examples of this. They could be arrested and even killed for their faith. Like what happens to to James here? But what Luke is reminding those young Christians of with this story and reminding us of this morning is, is that these human authorities, they're not really in charge. God is the one who is really in charge. So Herod wants Peter locked up, but God overrules Herod. Now, this doesn't mean God will always prevent bad rulers from hurting Christians. We know that because of church history, because of even current events, but but even this story disproves that. So God saves Peter, but don't forget what he did to James. James wasn't saved. His life wasn't preserved, right? Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So so was God not in charge when Herod killed James? James. Or was it something that just sort of snuck past the Lord and he he wasn't paying attention? No, right? Ridiculous. Of course, that's not the case. Nothing ever gets past the Lord. Everything in this universe happens the exact way God wants it to happen. Everything in this universe happens the exact way God wants it to happen. Now, what happens is we can't always square everything in our human logic. So there's certain things that happen and we think, of course, God God was actively against that, right? Somehow that happened, but God didn't really allow it to happen. But that's not true, right? So we want to press pause where our logic contradicts clear scripture teaching and trust scripture more than we trust our logic. Everything in this universe happens the exact way God wants it to happen. This is Ephesians chapter one, verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. But see, we can always trust God to do the right thing. He always does the right thing. Even if we don't understand how that works, he always does the right thing. So so when we pray for God to heal from sickness, we don't know that we'll be healed from sickness for sure, but we know he'll do the right thing, right? When when we pray to get a new job, we don't know that we'll actually get a new job, but we know God will do the right thing. He always does the best thing. So he's, he's in charge over Herod, but in one situation he saves Peter's life, in another situation, he, he allows James' life to be taken. So, so human authorities, they aren't in charge. God is. And, and he proves it with what we just saw in the middle of this passage by breaking Peter out of, of prison. But see, the message didn't get through to Herod. It should have. He should have realized, I put all these things in place. I did everything I could with my power, and yet God showed me I'm not really in charge because Peter was freed from prison here. He, he should have, Herod should have repented against fighting God and his people. But Herod doesn't do that. It shows how weak our sinful flesh is, how opposed to the Lord we are by our nature. Herod doubles down. So look at the end of our passage. We'll come back to the middle in a minute, but look over at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people, people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So Herod's mad at these two Phoenician cities, so he's made sure that somehow government, they stick it to them, right? They've sort of brought commerce around them. They haven't stepped in as as a Roman government and kind of provided for them when they needed it. So they're kind of sticking it to these two towns because Herod is upset with, with these people. And eventually the people realize they need to do whatever they can to get back on the king's good side, right? In fact, look at the lengths they go to. Verse 21 on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So, so one of his officials convinces him, hey, show mercy to these people. So Herod says, okay, I'll go and visit these people. But basically what's in Herod's mind is, but I want to know that they're sorry for what they have done, right? He, he wants them to kind of try to fix it as much as they can. So, so he puts on his robe, and he goes out, and he addresses them as their king, now look at the people's response to his speech. Verse 22. And the people were shouting the voice of God and not of man. So they're responding to Herod by, by telling him they believe he's more than a man. It's crazy, right? They, they say your voice is the voice of God and not of man. Now they may have known that was untrue as they said it. They're just trying to kind of butter him up to please him so that he'll give them provision in these two towns again. However, there was a lot of emperor worship in these days, so they might have actually believed it. We, we don't know, but, but in any event, on the outside, they're acting like their political leader is more than a man. And we're supposed to see how ridiculous that is in this passage, and I think we hear that, and we all think, oh, so crazy, right, that people would ever do this. But we're tempted to do this sometimes, right? Maybe not in ways that are this explicit, but, but just think about this. Don't, don't we sometimes operate as if a particular candidate— or a particular party, or a particular policy is going to save us in our country, right? If only only this party got into office, if only this politician got into office, if only this platform would make it through Congress, then that would would save our country. Or or the opposite, don't we sometimes think, man, if this politician gets in power, if this party gets in power, if this policy makes it through Congress, then – then it'll irreversibly ruin our country. We think that way sometimes. But, but see, in both those cases, we're giving human authorities way too much credit. Way too much credit. Politicians, they will oftentimes talk like they are our saviors. It's a pretty standard issue, right? That's just the way that they're going to talk. Hey, listen, guys, if you want to be saved, if you don't want this country to, to be in the dumpster, you got to vote for me. That's kind of the way that politicians talk. They talk like they're our saviors. They talk like they're, they're little gods who are in charge of things. They aren't. They're humans, right? They're, they're humans. Now, they've been given a domain of authority, but their authority is underneath and dependent on God's authority. As, as Christians, we, we should know that better than anybody. God's the only one who can guarantee anything. So we should be careful how much of our heart we're giving over to politics, It's a good question to think about. Now, some of you think, no, I don't really care much about politics, and you're in the clear, but just bear with the rest of us that that can struggle with this from time to time. We want to be careful how much of our heart we give over to politics. Because the thing is, if there's something that can make you so blind in your anger, that can wake you up in the middle of the night, that sometimes you won't even eat because you're so upset... Okay, usually that shows that that thing has at least a piece of your heart, right? But, but the good news for us as Christians is that something can only break your heart if it has your heart, right? The good news for us as Christians, something can only break your heart if it has your heart. Don't give your heart to politics. Don't give your heart to human authorities. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Christians should be the best citizens, Christians should be the best citizens, the most thoughtful and selfless voters. We should care about politics. We should care about our role in the democratic process. But again, it should never break our hearts. That's a good question to ask yourself. Do do I ever treat these issues like this candidate or this party or this platform is, is my savior? Do I ever treat it like it's the voice of God and not of man? Well, we we don't want to do that right politicians human human governing authorities they're, they're not god they're they're just humans and god proves this to Herod and everybody else in verse 23 immediately an angel of the lord struck him down because he did not give god the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last pretty intense right pretty intense god strikes herod down he takes his life now, when we're told he's eaten by worms, that could be getting at a few different things. That was actually a common idiom in the day. When a tyrant was dead, people would say, you know, he's, he's being eaten by worms. And that was kind of a way that people would be happy and that they would talk about being happy that, that he was gone. But it could be talking about some sort of literal disease that they thought, okay, there's, there's actual things that are going on inside of him, and that's led to his death. We don't know. But in any event, God had taken his life. And that's something that God can do. We seem to do it throughout scripture, right? He, he takes his life. Look at why he takes his life. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So it's because of his sin that God takes his life. This is something God can do. He does it with Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter five. You remember They sell that piece of property and then they lie to the Holy Spirit about how much they sold it for and God takes their life. They're they're judged for their sin. And scripture is clear that God can do that. God can judge any sinner for any sin at any time. That's a true thing, period, paragraph. God can judge any sinner for any sin, any time. And that's a good reminder, right? God God would have been in the right to take your life the first time you ever sinned. Isn't that crazy? He could have done that and he would have been righteous to do it. He could have taken your life the first time you had ever sinned sin. Just think about this morning. If, if God had operated this way with you this morning, how long would it have taken before you were struck down and eaten by worms? Not long, not long before you were displeased with your situation and not content or unrighteously angry or selfish, or your focus was on yourself instead of on the Lord. So we need to be reminded how gracious God is toward us, right? He, he didn't have to be. You, you could have been rightfully judged like Herod was in our story. Well, look again at the particular sin Herod is judged for. Verse 22. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. So, so the audience of Herod's speech, they were offering him the glory that only belongs to God, and he took it. That's what his sin was. They're offering the glory, which in this context, that, that just means the recognition of, of greatness that only God deserves the recognition of greatness that only God deserves. They're offering that, only God deserves it. They're offering it to Herod, and he accepts it. Now, what he should have done is is what we saw Peter do a few weeks ago where Cornelius in Acts 10 tries to worship Peter, and Peter says, stand up, I too am a man. That's how Herod should have responded, but he doesn't. He goes the opposite direction, and he accepts it. He doesn't deflect the glory to its rightful owner. He, He keeps it for himself. It's the same thing we saw in that Ezekiel passage that Dara read, the Old Testament reading, in Ezekiel chapter 28, which ironically enough, the, the king of Tyre in our passage, which those are, that's one of the two towns that's happening here, Tyre and Sidon. So Ezekiel chapter 28, the king of Sire, this, or, uh, Tyre, this is what God says to him, your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet, God says, you are but a man, and no god. But see, that's exactly what Herod was doing. He's stealing glory from God. It's actually the worst crime in all the universe. The worst theft that you can take part in is stealing glory from the Lord. But that's what Herod was doing here, right? It it goes against the first commandment given to Israel from Mount Sinai, only worship the one true God of the Bible. And of course, an implication of that command is that we shouldn't let anybody else give us worship or glory that, that only God deserves. But that's what Herod does. Now, just by way of application, it's unlikely that your family members or your coworkers or your friends are ever going to tell you, you know what, I think in a lot of ways you're like a God, a little bit more than a human. It's probably not going to happen, right? It's a good thing that that doesn't happen. Probably not going to happen. But there are going to be times where somebody tries to praise you for something that you're not ultimately responsible for. That's where this comes out with us, and this happens a lot. People are going to try to praise you. For something that you're not ultimately responsible for. So they'll they'll try to give you praise for the character of your children, for one example, or they'll try to give you praise for your ability to teach, or your skills and your occupation, or, or they'll try to give you praise for your honesty or your kindness or some other character trait. Well, as a Christian, are you responsible for those things? At bottom, did you produce those things from yourself? This is First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So see, when someone tries to give you the glory, deflect it to the one who really deserves it, to the one who really did that thing. But see, Herod loves people's praise. He, he really did think he was an all-powerful ruler. He was happy to be recognized as such. But eventually God had had enough, and he said no more, right? And he takes Herod's life. This is the end of the passage there read earlier, Ezekiel 28, verse 9 Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you were but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? So basically what Ezekiel is saying is the same thing we see in Acts 12. You can act like a God until you're on your deathbed. And then it becomes clear to everybody. You're not in charge. It became clear to everybody. Herod wasn't in charge. He, he's not a God because he's dead and, and he's not coming back. And with all this, God's making it clear, despite what people think, human authorities aren't really in charge. God is. Now, now, there may be times, there's three points here in this passage, I will tell you that first one was by far the longest one, but there may be times where you're sitting in a sermon and it's getting kind of long and you're thinking, if only I had a, I had a short break. Or maybe there was some entertainment, right? Well, God gives us some entertainment. He actually gives us a joke. What we're supposed to see as a joke is something that's funny, that stands out to us, that's, that's in the middle of this passage. Once God sends the angel, so we kind of followed Herod's track throughout the whole thing. Now let's go back. Peter was freed from prison. Look at what he does. Verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he goes to the house where the Christians in town are together praying, right? (laughs) What are they praying for? They're praying that Peter would be released. We see that in verse 5, back towards the beginning of Acts chapter 12. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So these Christians are doing what Christians are supposed to do when something goes wrong. They've gathered together to pray that the Lord would work in this situation. They're praying that, that God would release Peter. So God answers that prayer, but look at what happens. Verse 13 And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So she's so excited, this prayer has been answered, that she goes, she doesn't open the door, she goes and she tells them. As they're praying, God, please release Peter. That's what they're praying. She goes and tells them, Peter has been released. So do they praise the Lord and hop up and go and welcome Peter? No. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, they kept saying, it is his angel. We don't know exactly what they mean by that. They, they might have thought Peter was already killed and this is sort of a manifestation of his soul. Or this was an angel who was sort of responsible to keep Peter safe. We don't know. But in any event, the one thing they were sure of was that's not really Peter standing outside the door. I remember when we started having children and I had never been around human children before in my life. I was the youngest one in my family. The first time I held a baby was our baby was Nora. The first time I changed a diaper was Nora. So anyway, Maria told me as the kids start getting older, you can't leave them on the couch in particular. So I would sit there and I would watch football and I would lay the kids on the couch and then I would sit in front of them. And she told me a hundred times, you can never get up and walk away. And she even said, cause she knows how my mind works. She was like, you will think that you will be fast enough But that baby can roll over in a second, and so you can't leave the baby. So Jude is laying on the couch, and I'm sitting on the floor, and there's a commercial, and I want to switch over to a different football game, and the remote control is two feet away from my hand. And so I think all I've got to do is just lean up on my knees, grab this remote, and lean right back, which is what I do. And in the course of that second, I hear a thud, because Jude was a huge, massive baby. And so he rolled off that couch onto the floor, and... uh, and, Instantly, I hear Maria from the back room go, what was that? And, uh, and he started crying, and we had to take him to the hospital. And he was fine again because he was a massive baby. So the doctor looked at him and was like, he's fine because he's so big. Praise the Lord that Jude was such a big, fat baby. So what I've learned is I just have to trust my wife when it comes to our children's physical safety. So I don't even try to feed it through a lens anymore. I just default to Maria. Maria. Because the hospital trips have been because of when I was watching the kids, and they haven't happened when Maria was watching the kids. So I've just learned that I have to, that I have to trust Maria to do that. But, but what we see here, the, these young Christians, they, they should have had this particular expectation. They were praying for this thing to happen. They should have expected, especially when this girl gives them this report, that he really had been released. But see, when push comes to shove, they didn't really believe God would answer that prayer. And this is another main truth that we see here in Acts 12. Your expectations show how powerful you think God is. Your expectations show how powerful you think God is. Again, this passage, it's designed where we're supposed to see the irony. We're supposed to see how ridiculous the situation is. They'd been praying for Peter's release. Obviously, they were only praying for it because with their brains, they believed God could do it. But in their heart, they didn't really believe that that he would. In fact, it it even seems to happen to Peter himself when he's rescued, that kind of thinking. Look at verse 9. And he went out and followed him, the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So to, to Peter also, it seemed too good to be true. Back to verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, as ridiculous as that thing is, we do the same thing. You can probably already see how, how we're going to connect the dots here. Our expectations show how powerful we think God is. So aren't there things you pray for, but you don't really believe that God will answer those prayers in a million years? We do the same thing. We do the same thing that we see the disciples doing here. Maybe it's for the health of your marriage. So you know with your brain, of course, of course, God can fix our marriage. He can He can make things healthier. But you're confident he's, he's not going to actually show up and do anything. Or maybe it's with evangelism. H- haven't been, there have been times you've prayed for opportunities to share the gospel, but then when it actually happens, you're surprised. I can't believe this happened, right? We prayed for the thing the night before, but, but when it actually happens, you're surprised. Why are we surprised? It's because in moments like that, we, we go through the motions of praying, but we're not really confident that God's going to show up and work. But of course, He does. Don't forget what we're taught in 1 John 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. So what he's saying is if if you pray for a thing that the Lord makes clear in his word that he wants, something like a healthier Christian marriage or opportunities to share the gospel, things that he makes really clear in his scripture that he wants – You're supposed to be confident he will answer those prayers. Your expectations show how powerful you really think God is. So so here's a good practice. Always expect God to outpace your expectations. Just always expect that. Always expect him to outpace your expectations. We've learned that with my parents. If my parents are in town, and let's say we buy supper, and I'm trying to be sneaky, and so I use my credit card and pay over the phone, mom will find out how much it was, And do you think she'll write me a check for that amount? No, she always gives me more. It's just what my parents do. We're supposed to do that same sort of thing with the Lord. Expect God to outpace your expectations. This is Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's what God tends to do. He tends to outpace our expectations. So expect him to do it. And and we can actually serve one another in this area by sharing how we've seen the Lord do this in our lives. That's a way for us to help one another, to believe that God really will do these things, is to share when we see God do it in our lives. Look at how quickly Peter has an eye toward this. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said... Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Why does he want them to know? He wants other Christians to be encouraged because God just did this amazing thing. He wants them to be reminded how powerful and faithful and good God is. So see, our our trust in Christ, so individually your trust in Christ uh, is kind of like a fire. And when another believer Testifies to the goodness and the faithfulness of God, it's like through testifying, they're throwing another log on that fire and it's kindling that fire and making it bigger. That's what we get to do for one another when we've seen God move and then we tell other Christians about seeing God move. It's throwing logs on the fire of, of trusting Christ. So I've got a time built in for that on Sunday morning during prayer, right? So we can be encouraged as we see stories of God's faithfulness and and power. Of course, we can do that throughout the week with one another, right? Sending a text, calling one another, meeting up through women's Bible study, men's Bible study, mentioning during those times with other believers ways you've seen God be faithful and powerful, mentioning it to our, our spouse and children. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. So, so we need the reminder that God's powerful and, and faithful. If you played Little League baseball, then you know that the fielders begin to, to get an idea of how far a kid on the other team can hit the ball. Right. So even if the guys in the field are trying to encourage the batter and say, hey, you're, you're going to hit this ball on the nose. We know you're going to hit it far. You can see whether they really think he's going to hit it far by what the outfielders do. Are they scooting in or are they scooting back? Right. Because talk is cheap and praise the Lord. Great thing for kids to encourage other kids. But you can see with their actions what they actually think is, is going to happen. Right. Well, some, sometimes we might tell God we know he can hit the ball really far. God, I'm sure you're going to hit the ball really far. But, but we're scooting up to the infield because we're not really expecting it. The same way that these believers weren't really expecting it. But we want to know that, that God can do far more than we expect. We, we want to expect him to, to hit it deep. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So your expectations show how powerful you think God is. We'll, we'll look at the tail end of our passage. Let's see something that we can always expect because it will always happen every time. So God kills Herod. Then look at what Luke notes, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, Herod, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. As our final point this morning, God's word can never be stopped. God's word can never be stopped. So Herod's words were stopped. He, he was judged for his sin, right? He, he is, his words and him, they were no more. God snuffed him out. But God's word can never be stopped. The word of God increased and multiplied, we're told. That's because of what God tells us in Isaiah 55. Remember this passage, Isaiah 55, verse 10? For as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God always accomplishes the purposes he has for his word. It will never be stopped. It will always do its work. That's what we've seen in Acts over and over again. God's God's word continues to go out and save more people, continues to grow these Christians in their faith. God's word can never be stopped. And that's why in your personal Christian life, you should be all about the Bible. We should be all about the Bible but because it will always bring back a return on our investment. It will always accomplish this good work in us. Now, now if the purpose of life is, is to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, the way Romans 8 says the purpose of life is, then, then you can think about the alternatives. What else can we give our time to and will that thing produce a return? No, anything else? Not really. The things oftentimes we spend our time doing, no guaranteed return there. But, but with the word, it is. Bible intake always produces good fruit. God's word can never be stopped. Um, me, me and our older kids watched the Fellowship of the Ring this last week, which is something I've been waiting for for a long time and met expectations. Oh, It was so great. But, but one thing that stood out to my kids was uh, the ring wraiths. So those, but you may not be familiar with the story, but there's these black riders and they're, they're not really alive and they're not really dead. And they're looking for this, this ring. They're always after the ring. And, and the scary thing about the creatures is, is how relentless they are. They never stop. They never sleep. They never eat, right? They, they never give up. They're always pursuing the ring. That's what God's word does. So, so as you put it in your heart, it, it rides around relentlessly. It doesn't stop. God's word, once it's in your heart, it it rides around to humble you and to exalt Christ and to promote holiness. It's doing those things in you. That's what God's word will do in your heart, and, and it will do it effectively. God's word can never be stopped. And it works the same way inside of a local church. That's why we spend so much time on Sunday in the Bible, right? That's why we sing these songs that are based on scripture and why we Pray according to Scripture and read the Bible and hear it preached. It's because it's the one tool God promises will always build us up in our faith in Christ. He doesn't guarantee any other means will always hit the bullseye, but with the Bible, He does. Proclamation of God's word will always hit the bullseye. Listen to the way we say it in Article One of our church's confession of faith: the Bible is the only instrument that God promises will always accomplish His purposes, and it should therefore be the center of ministry in the individual Christian life and the life of the church. God's word can never be stopped. So, so at the beginning of our passage, again, we have these two kings who, who were opposed to one another, King Herod and God. But by the end, only one of them is left standing. So Herod had all these plans, and he was allowed to, to sort of boast and brag about that for a time, but, but eventually God snuffed him out, snuffed out his words. And then when Herod is in the ground, God's word is left riding on. That's how it's been for all of human history. A human tyrant will rise up and then fall. His, his words are revered for a time, and then they're forgotten. Herod is just a footnote in history. But see, this morning, just, just like every day since Acts 2, God's word about Christ's death and resurrection continues to be preached and prayed and sung and read, and it continues to transform.